Well, welcome everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. I'm Frank Hodge, Dean of the Foster School of Business, and I want to welcome you to the next edition of Frank Discussions with Dean Hodge. My guest today is Katie Griggs. Uh, Katie was named President of Business Operations for the Mariners last summer. She's responsible for all aspects of the Mariners' business operations. Prior to joining the Mariners, Katie spent four years helping build Atlanta United into one of the premier major league soccer franchises. She was chief business officer overseeing all aspects of the Atlanta United front office. She also directed the team's community relations efforts. In 2017, Katie was named a Sports Business Journal Game Changer, an annual award that honors women leaders across all aspects of sports business. Katie is a North Carolina native and received her BA in government from Dartmouth College and her MBA from the Tuck School at Dartmouth. Katie, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Katie, I wanted to start uh, by reading a quote from Major League Baseball, MLB.com. The quote is, Griggs's professional journey began when she graduated early, that's from high school, and enrolled at North Carolina State University. She was 14 years old. Wow. Graduating from high school and attending college at 14. So what was that experience like and how did that sort of feed into who you are today as a leader? You know, it's a little hard to say what it's like because it's the only experience I had. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think it really, it created an environment in which I was a little bit different. I knew I was a little bit different and I spent a disproportionate amount of my time trying to figure out how to fit in. Right? And I think that as you look at leadership in general, at least my career, I've generally not looked like a lot of the people in the room. And whether that was age, whether that was gender, whether it's the fact I was a mom, my experience was often different. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been my experience for so much of my life that it really has been something that doesn't phase me in a way that perhaps it may phase some other folks. Yeah, interesting. I was riding my bike around the block at age 14 and you were in <laughs> I was doing that too. <laughs> Uh, in the article, it also mentions that you were impatient as a young person and continue to be so today. And I think of impatience a little bit like stress. So depending on the context, it can be a good thing. So can you talk about how your impatience sort of infiltrates your leadership style and how you um, manage it in dealing with day-to-day -day interactions with your team? Probably sometimes better than others um, <laughs> is the reality of it. No, I, I agree. I think impatience can be a good thing. Um, when I was younger, it just manifested in frustration, right? If I couldn't, couldn't move something as fast as I wanted to, whether it was my own performance, whether it was a performance of a team or an organization, it was frustrating and sometimes I was like, ah, screw it, I'm not doing this, this isn't working, and would walk away earlier than I should have. I think as my career has progressed and as I have hopefully matured at least a little bit, um, impatience has more, more been funneled into lofty aspirations and sort of a more determined effort to go get them. And I'm willing to reach further and be a little bit more aggressive in terms of goal setting for myself and others because I actually believe we can get there. And I recognize that it's not about a lack of effort. It's sometimes the impatience is more, a, I can see a future point of view that I want to be at now because it's amazing and it takes a little bit to get there. Um, but because I can see it, I think the difference between now and maybe 10, 15 years ago 10 or 15 years ago, I would have looked, I would have seen the place I wanted to be, seen the place I wanted an organization to be, and gotten really frustrated when I couldn't see very quick moves to get there. Now I have a little bit more experience and have seen over time 
you can get there, but it's, it's not going to be as fast as I want. Mm -hmm. But you can still get there, and by setting those same lofty goals, the reality is you end up further faster than I would otherwise. Yeah. Can you provide maybe an example? <laughs> yeah, either sports. I, yeah. I didn't see from your bio whether you played sports as a, a youth. Or There's a reason I'm on this side, not the other one. I was, I was a <laughs> solidly mediocre athlete across the board. Yeah, so maybe uh, an example where that impatience, where you, you took that impatience and then turned it into a positive, perhaps by setting an ambitious goal and achieving it? Yeah, no, so Atlanta United, the point in time when I joined, I was not part of the founding of the team. I joined when they were about three months into the inaugural season back in 2017, right before we moved into what was going to be a brand new venue at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Um, you know, soccer in Atlanta wasn't supposed to succeed. And before I got there, you know, there had been significant success, but it was a new shiny object. And so the question was, could you actually take something that was a shiny object and have it become something that became sticky and build a fan base that not only would come when it was new and fun and the team was pretty good, which helps, um, but something where you could build an actual sustainable fan base. Um, we looked at the Seattle Sounders in full candor as really the gold star franchise and one that we really hoped to emulate. Um, but we had a big venue at Mercedes-Benz Stadium that had about 70,000 seats that we had the ability to use. We had um, a bifurcated model inside that stadium where it was built specifically knowing that it would have a soccer team as well as the NFL franchise and the Falcons, which meant we could curtain off the 300 level, which took it down to closer to a 42,000 person venue if you just looked at the first two levels. The reason that was important is it allowed us to fairly significantly adapt, our, adapt the way in which we went to market based around supply and demand. So we didn't try to sell all 70,000 seats to every single match because we knew we would fail. And we knew one of the things that made us special was the energy and excitement that a full venue created. Um, we had a facility that allowed us to have that stratification. And so we were really, really strategic about how often we opened up that 300 level because the idea was if we opened it up, we would sell it out. And so for us, it really did become about how do we actually manage that curve, manage demand, take advantage of it, push as far as we could without effectively letting the air out of the balloon and having a have empty stadium that kills the vibe. Because the reality is we knew a lot of our fans were coming for the vibe as much as they were coming for the product on the field because they were still learning the sport of soccer. So through that, prior to COVID, we sold out every single game we ever had. We averaged 53,000 fans per match and were, I think, top 10 in the world for global soccer attendance in 20, 2019. Mm -hmm. So it's something where for us it really was taking something that we knew was interesting to our market and setting a standard that I think even Major League Soccer would have told us was absolutely insane and just maintaining focus on that until we got there. And we were pretty darn successful. Yeah. That's an amazing stadium, by the way. I think one of the things that's special about it is it's fan-focused. Mm -hmm. I think it was constructed with mm -hmm. the fan in mind, and I think you brought that focus on the, yep. the fan base here to Seattle, which I appreciate. I, I want to move on to after-college experiences. Yep. So what was your first job after graduation, and what have you taken with you from that position? Uh, I went and did what a lot of people who had no clue what they wanted to do did, which was I became a strategy consultant. Um, <laughs> Did that for the first two and a half years, and it was it was awesome. Um, and you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. I think it was the absolute best thing I could have done. Um, I've always been incredibly jealous of people who had a clear point of view on who they wanted to be and what they wanted to do, because that has 
never been me, and if you look at my resume, it sort of reflects the fact that I hasn't had the North Star necessarily. Um, for me, the North Star was more about the what was I learning and how did I sort of move forward. It's been very much a forward-looking thing. And so when I was looking at what do I do coming out of college, I was interested in why people do the things they do, what influences human behavior. Um, but besides that, it really was how could I find a job that would open more doors than it closed, that where I would get to interact with interesting people, learn new stuff, and hopefully somewhere along the way would figure out what I wanted to do. And consulting was just that. It was perfect. I did meet a lot of really interesting people. I worked on a lot of really interesting problems, worked on a lot of different problems, and built a lot of different skill sets. Um, I also realized that was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, and so for me, again, every single career move since then, it's not been a carefully choreographed plan. If you had asked me when I would have been sitting in this room over at either at Dartmouth or at Tuck, if I was going to be a president of a major league baseball team, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> so it's, it's something where I think it really is about being very open-minded to what opportunities are ahead and not being afraid to say yes to taking on opportunities where I didn't know everything going into it and there was a chance that I could try something and it wouldn't work out. And I did it anyway. You said in your answer there was a point where you realized this was not what you wanted to do as a career. Was that when you thought about going back for an MBA? No. Um, that was when I flew home for Christmas and got landed with a job <laughs> offer. Uh, it was one of those weird, I'm not the person who normally talks on airplanes, I promise. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I remember I'd gone through security behind a woman who had dropped things everywhere helped her pick them up, and we both went on our merry way. And it turned out that was the person who sat next to me on the flight from New York City to Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, so there was a, oh, yes, you're that person. Thank you for your help starting point. And it turned out she ran a boutique marketing consultancy that did market research. This was the early 2000s. Uh, they worked predominantly with media and entertainment companies, um, trying to figure out how do you leverage digital media as a new platform for engaging, engaging and retaining uh, consumers and fans. Um, and by the time we landed, she made me a job offer that I assumed was a joke. Um, <laughs> turned out it wasn't. And I started on April Fool's Day and then spent the next two and a half years traveling around the US and Europe doing market research um, in that media and entertainment sector. And it was, again, incredible experience. I learned a ton. Most importantly, I learned that not everyone looks, thinks, and acts like I do. Um, but it was a coming out of that, that really it was, okay, I've had these two cool learning experiences. I've liked aspects of both of them. I still don't know where I want to go. I still don't know what I want to be. And when I looked at what could a next step be that would allow me an opportunity to, again, open more doors than I closed and build new skills that would give me optionality as I continued to figure it out, I went back to business school. Back to business school, mm -hmm. back to tech. Yep. No. Plus, I like Hanover. <laughs> Turning to professional baseball, so you are president of business operations, and Jerry DePoto is president of baseball operations. Mm -hmm. how, how do the two of you work together to make sure you have on-field and back-office success? Yeah, no, Jerry and I work really closely together. So the cleanest way to describe his job versus my job is if it involves the athletes, whether it's drafting, sort of performance, coaching, moving them up the minor league system, salary negotiations, all of that, that's Jerry's world. 
So that's all on the baseball side. Anything else that we do from a Mariner standpoint falls onto mine. Um, but the reality is the two are intrinsically linked, right? We recognize we do an awful lot of stuff. You may you suspect, think of us predominantly as a baseball team, and we are. But we're also an organization that's incredibly um, invested in this community from a community relations and foundation standpoint. We also own a restaurant and bar across the street from the ballpark. We also have an interest in our television broadcaster in Root. We're also a company that hosts concerts, and next year we'll be hosting the NHL Winter Classic. So you know, we have a lot of different things, but at our core, we are a baseball team. And we recognize that particularly from a business standpoint, while there is a lot that we can do, even when the team isn't performing on field, I suspect every single person in this room wants to see us win, and it's a little more fun when we do. We know that. So from my standpoint and from Jerry's standpoint, it's how do we ensure that we're working together to understand how the business comes together and how the business can help him and his team have the resourcing that they are looking for to ensure that we can compete on field, but also on our side, how do we ensure that we're doing everything we can to support the athletes, help showcase them for who they are, help them build their brands, and help ensure that this is a place that they want to be and they want to stay? And I think whether you're looking at last year's signing and the ability to retain Luis Castillo and sign him to a long-term deal, whether you're looking at you know, Julio, who is as amazing, if not better, than he seems, truly, um, getting him to literally effectively sign up his entire career to potentially be here in Seattle. A lot of that is because of the relationship that they have, not only with Jerry and Scott and the coaching staff, but also on our side in terms of the relationship they've built with our comms team, with our social media team, with our community teams, and with our fans and feeling the electricity inside the ballpark. They want to be here, they want to play here, and we have to be working hand in hand to make that happen. And that comms team and the social media team and all that comes under your mm -hmm. umbrella. It's a big job. I want to talk about your leadership experience in Major League Soccer and professional baseball and the diversity uh, initiatives in those two leagues. So both leagues have tried to further diversify their leadership. Can you comment on those efforts and, and maybe share some thoughts on how successful they've been and where they might be headed over the next five to ten years? Yeah, no, I think, look, it's, it's something where I would argue the sports industry is maybe a little behind. Um, and with that being said, there is a real awareness, and I think you're seeing greater action. I don't think the awareness is new, um, but I think you're seeing more action behind the awareness just across the field of sports. And so this isn't even a baseball versus soccer thing. I think the unique thing about baseball versus soccer is when you're looking at the composition of the fan base, soccer is intrinsically, it's smaller, first and foremost, in terms of the core avid fan base. But it is relatively younger and more diverse because it is such a global game. Right? Whereas baseball has such history and legacy that the composition of the fans historically hasn't necessarily reflected the broader composition of our market of, or of the U.S. So they're coming at it with different challenges and different opportunities, but both are ultimately in all brands are looking to grow. Right? How do you make sure that what you're doing is relevant and attractive and appealing to as many people as possible? And again, I think while the intention's been there all along, I think there's a greater appreciation for the role that diversity plays, where it's not just the right thing to do. It's not just a tick the box exercise so you look good to the press. When you pull together people who have different life experiences, which can mean a lot of different things, they highlight blind spots. They help you get better. 
and the more effectively you can represent the potential market you can serve, the better you can actually work to serve that market. Because no matter how hard I try, my life experience is my own. I can try to open my aperture. I can try to be sensitive to things. There are certain places I won't even think of something. And it's not because I'm not trying. It's not because I don't care. It's because that's not a life experience I've ever even had or I've seen, and therefore it's invisible to me. And so I think you're seeing a lot of companies and a lot of sports teams in particular who are finally figuring that out. And you're seeing more and more people throughout the levels. And the reality is there is a pipeline challenge, right? We all have to be a lot more intentional about building the pipeline, building the talent, so you can continue to have people at even those senior most levels who have the requisite experience to do the jobs that need to be done. But there are, they do exist. And I think even in the last few months, in Major League Baseball, so at the point in time I joined, I was the only female president in Major League Baseball. Caroline O'Connor was just named president about a month or two ago over at the Marlins. You've recently seen two other C-suite promotions with um, Caroline over at the Padres as their new COO and the COO of the Brewers and Marty as well. Mm -hmm. So you are starting to see, you know, in baseball in particular, there are not as many women. And so that's a place where you're starting to see more women, but you're also seeing more people of color coming up through the ranks. And just in general, people who have a wider array of backgrounds, whereas historically it may have been the vast majority of people, because people don't tend to, people want to work in sports, and then they don't tend to leave, right? And so you saw a lot of people where they came in, they got that first job as a coordinator of X, and 20 plus years later, they're here. You're starting to see more people who are coming in with different work and career experiences, in addition to simply different life experience because you're a man or a woman or a person of color or a person with a different sexual identity. Yeah, I think we share that common goal to provide those opportunities to a more diverse, very talented uh, pool of individuals. You've been in Seattle for just over a year and you've started to take on some leadership roles in the community. So you're on the board of directors of the Washington Roundtable and Root Sports Northwest. Can you compare and contrast the Atlanta business community and the Seattle business community for us? I mean, they're, I was saying it before we started, I think I've been somewhat surprised by the places where there's more commonality than I would have expected. There's a lot of Fortune 500 organizations based in the Atlanta area, obviously. There are a number based here too. Sectors tend to be a little bit different. Um, but with that being said, you have very large, sophisticated organizations in both markets. Both are very focused on education and have thriving students with, mm. with UW here, Georgia Tech in Atlanta. I think the other thing where it was a, it's a interesting commonality, and yes, there are differences. Atlanta and Seattle are kind of different in some ways too. But another place where there's a significant commonality is the composition of the market. And what I mean by that is both cities have experienced explosive growth starting in like the 1990s to now. So you've got almost a bifurcated population in both, and they behave as a bifurcated population. You have a core people for whom Seattle or the metro area is, this is home, right? This is where you grew up, you have family here, you went to school here, you've worked here, this is, this is you are a Seattleite, right? Or you're a Washingtonian. Atlanta's the same. You have people where they grew up there, that is home, that is their family, they've gone to school, go dogs. Uh, they've got the whole Georgia thing going. Both cities, though, have had a ton of people over the last 20 plus years who have moved to that metro area and have chosen to make it their home. Some on a more iterative basis, but a lot of whom have come, and this is now their home. But you actually have two separate populations where the level of engagement between the two is a little bit different. 
and particularly in the world of professional sports, it creates a really interesting marketing opportunity. Because if you move to Seattle or if you move to Atlanta from somewhere else, chances are you have a favorite team, right? So if you're moving to Atlanta from Seattle, maybe eventually you'll learn to like the Falcons or the Braves, but chances are your team is the Mariners or it's the Seahawks, same thing here. And so it's how do you build a market where you're not only capitalizing around a fan base that's grown up with you, that loves you, but you're also creating something where you're creating an inclusive welcoming space for those who perhaps you may be their second fate choice team. But the reality is that can get your kids. <laughs> and that all of a sudden helps bring families along for the ride. So I think that's something where from a commonality of the market in terms of the way in which it exists and the way in which the different circles inside the community, both corporate as well as just normal life, um, interchange. It's actually, again, I've been pleasantly surprised by the similarities. Is there a key difference that um, perhaps drives the fan base and how they behave? Have you noticed anything there? No, I think both are really good sports cities. I mean, if, if, whether you're looking at the 12th man over at the Seahawks and the level, I mean, good gracious, watching everyone come and support us like last year, particularly at the end of the season for the postseason, was just that was fun. out of control, <laughs> right? Like this is, I think both cities and both markets, like they, they want you to care. Right? And I think that's one of the places that's hard in sports. If you have your fans, your fans, fans love the teams. And they love the teams because sports is an intrinsic motivator. So it's not because I'm putting out marketing messaging saying, love us, although hopefully you do. But with that being said, people love sports because it's part of who they are. It's how their memories from childhood is going to games with church groups or Boy Scouts or your mom or your dad or your aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents, what have you. Right? It's part of who you are. It's part of your identity. Fans want to see a team care about winning as much as they do, right? And I think both markets are like that. And mm. so when you see those ebbs and flows, a lot of it is really putting your money where your mouth is, putting those efforts out there and showcasing, hey, look, like the challenge with sports and the challenge with running a business of sports, and Jerry and I were just chatting about this over lunch yesterday, is when you're looking at the baseball team component, our core product is a group of superbly talented young men. Right? And because they're humans and not baseball robots, sometimes they have bad days. Sometimes they wake up after fighting with their girlfriend the night before, and they don't play as well the next day. Sometimes they randomly trip on something and they get injured. Right? There's such a high degree of variability that our job is to really ensure that we're on the baseball side creating a really strong base with reinforcements, recognizing that the, there's the stuff happens element of our sport and of our game and of our business. And on the business side, helping ensure that we're doing everything we can to tell the stories of who the players are, all the work that we're doing, and giving folks a reason to believe and understand and a comfort that we do care as much as our fans do. The 2023 All-Star Game will be mm -hmm. at T-Mobile Park. Huge event. Huge. How do you prepare for that? And can you share anything about unique experiences? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a huge honor. And it's going to be really, really fun summer. We, we can't wait. Um, I think I, I, I had the privilege of hosting the Major League Soccer All-Star Game in Atlanta um, while I was there. And this is that on steroids. Um, you know, I believe I found out about this two weeks after I started. I was told we could have the opportunity to host the event. <laughs> And we've been working on it ever since. So that would have been September of 2021. 
We've, uh, so one of the things that we did, we're very, we very much want to have been working with base, Major League Baseball, because it is a Major League Baseball event, just to avoid confusion, it's not the Seattle Mariners event. We're helping put it on and collaborate in the, um, ensuring that it's a great event for the Pacific Northwest, working alongside Major League Baseball. Um, but with that being said, we've had a team of emerging leaders inside our organization who've been operating as a leadership team focused on how do we ensure that this is an event that reaches into our community, not just here in Seattle, but throughout our five-state region. Because for anyone who doesn't know, sports teams, you get a region to activate it. And oftentimes, it's like a 60-mile radius. Here, we have all of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Alaska, and shared territory of Hawaii. So for us, we want to make sure that working alongside Major League Baseball, we're creating opportunities to engage our full region, whether they can be there in person or whether they're consuming it through other platforms, um, but also ensuring that outside of the ballpark, because presumably, y'all are aware, there's the All-Star Game, there's a Home Run Derby, there are a bunch of other events. They're going to be events throughout the entire town. So Major League Baseball is coming back out. They've been out a number of times since it was announced to work on getting everything organized. They'll be back out later this month to try to finalize all of the locations for events, but whether we're talking about red carpet show with all of the all-stars and their families, and the family part's actually pretty fun. Whether you're looking at different ways in which fan fests, concerts, other activations throughout town. Um, we'll be doing a lot with Little League and softball as well, not just here inside Seattle, but across the um, Tri-County region. So we're working on pulling all of those together, but the fun thing is there are going to be events at the ballpark. By definition, we have roughly 47,000 seats. Um, those are going to be tough tickets to get. Um, but there are places where even if you aren't able to be in the building, where you'll be able to engage with the event. Because it really is a celebration of baseball and softball across the Pacific Northwest. And yeah. um, it's, been, it's been fun having the team. Like I said, they've been working on this for over a year and a half already, um, or close to a year and a half, uh, in an effort to get ready. If there's any way the Foster School of Business can help, please let me know. We'd <laughs> love you. to be a part of that. Thank you. Uh, last question, and then we'll go to some audience questions. What are you most excited about for next season? You know, All-Star is the easy gimme answer. I'm excited to build off the momentum from last year, right? Like, there is a lot to be said, and I, I had the opportunity to talk to some of our players about this, a lot to be said for not wearing that stupid monkey of your back of longest postseason drought in professional sports. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for having that gone. I think a lot of it, it was... I don't know if any of you were at the ballpark the night that we clinched or had an opportunity to see some of the imagery from it. It felt like catharsis. Like, I think everyone, it was like just this emotional weight that had been carried around for 20 plus years. It was gone, right? And I think for our players, it was incredibly freeing because they don't have to hear that. Because think about it. Again, they're humans. Ah, Seattle Mariners won't make the postseason. You're not going to make the postseason. Like, at a certain point, it's tiring. It's exhausting. And no matter how good you are, it's a thing. And it's gone now. We get to play with an incredibly talented, young, diverse roster. Our pitching core I'd put against anyone in the league. And our fans have seen it. Right? This, isn't, this isn't another season of, oh, trust us, we're doing it, we're trying. We got there. And that wasn't good enough. We're looking to go further, right? And I think we now are at a place where coming off of the incredible season we had last year, all of the excitement with this year, both from a player standpoint and the fan standpoint, knowing we have All-Star as an opportunity to really rally this community around the sport of baseball, knowing that 
you know, we're really to a point now where people seem to be comfortable coming together in greater numbers. It's, I'm excited for all of those different things. Um, I'm excited for the fact that we've been able to make some decisions to make it, to intentionally welcome people to the ballpark who perhaps haven't necessarily felt a part of it. We rolled out, last year we rolled out a fan-friendly pricing um, where we had menu items where you could get refillable soda or a hot dog or a popcorn or peanuts or what have you for three bucks. Um, again, recognizing that some people either don't want to or aren't able to spend money when they're there, and the whole point is to bring our community together. Uh, we also are rolling out a $10 get in price every single game. So it's, even if it's the home opener, not saying that they won't sell out, but they're there for every single game is a $10 get in price. So we can make sure that we're welcoming people our community who otherwise perhaps haven't felt that they've had the opportunity or have had to make some hard choices that we don't want them to make. We want them to be part of the Mariners family. So I'm excited about seeing that. I'm excited the J-Rod squad is switching to a general admission area for next year, which means that if you want to buy a ticket, instead of having to try to coordinate with your friends and buy them together in Venmo and all this, it's, I'm buying a ticket for Tuesday night. I'm going to be in this section. Buy your own ticket. We're going to meet up there and we're going to sit together. Right, again, it's about how do we make it easier to be a fan? How do we make it easier and more fun to actually come and engage and be a part of what we're trying to do over at T-Mobile Park with the Seattle Mariners? So for me, there's, there's so, it really is almost a <laughs> longer list of things that I'm excited about, and there's really nothing that I'm worried about at this point. I think it is just a bit, we're all looking forward to actually getting started playing, and I think from the very moment that our season ended last year, you know, if you'd asked anyone on the team, both on the field or in the front office, like, we want to get back out there. So for us, that, that's probably where we're most excited about. Yeah, you mentioned the way it ended. It, that last game was something else. It just kept going on and on. So excited for next <laughs> and season. And on and on yes. and on. My new theory is that beer sales should resume if you do the seventh inning stretch the second time. Twice. <laughs> so. Yeah, excited for next year. Thrilled. Thank you. Could not Thank you. wait. Yeah. Yeah. So let's open it up. For questions from the public, if you want to ask a question, please move towards the microphone because the folks that are online will only hear you if you speak into the mic. Thank you so much for the time. I just wanted to ask, how would you recommend uh, setting goals for younger people? You mentioned it's hard when your goals don't necessarily materialize. That was a source of frustration for you when you were younger. Uh, just curious about thoughts on that. You know, I, I think it's hard. I'll, I'll be honest, a common refrain and early feedback from managers was to be patient, which is not what I'm good at. Um, and I, so I think some of it is just experience, right? There is somewhere it's just you live and eventually you see the success as you actually get there, but that, unfortunately that takes time. I think part of it is what are, what's the roadmap, right? If you've got a big lofty goal, what are places where you can measure your success along the way and recognizing that those may be smaller steps than you want them to be? But it's important to be able to see, am I on the right track? And if I'm not, okay, what am I going to do about it, right? And by the way, you may end up deciding based on what you like or don't like along the way or th how things are going, you may end up adjusting where that end state goal is. And that's okay too. Um, but for me, a lot of it was having more grace with myself and not feeling that I failed if I didn't immediately get to where I was going and recognizing, like, I'd be fully transparent. My husband and I both went to Tuck at the same time. So we both had undergraduate degrees from Dartmouth. We both had graduate degrees from Dartmouth. Um, he went and amusingly became a strategy consultant afterwards, after talk, <laughs> when I went into sports. And his bonus the first year was higher than my annual salary. Caused my head to spin off my body. I was so mad. 
And it was a choice I'd made. I went in eyes wide open. Um, but again, it's something where I think there are points along the way where you really have to evaluate what do you want and why. And that's going to change over time. But having those benchmarks of why are you doing what you're doing and knowing that and staying true to the why um, at least is sort of what's kept me on track. And that why was the North Star of Learning? It, it's the North Star of Learning and Curiosity, working with people on interesting problems and doing things where I wake up most days. I would say I, each day is probably a stretch, but most days I wake up and I am feel incredibly fortunate to do what I do, to work with the people I work with, and, to, and I'm challenged by the problems. Right? And when that changes, then I'll probably make a change. But I think that's something where, for me, it really is the North Star is learning in that intellectual curiosity. Next question. Hi there. My name is Sharon Tom, and I'm the co-president for Women in Business. And I'm curious to know, we touched a little bit about providing opportunities for diverse talent. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know how you'd like to see people in your industry, both women and allies, create more opportunities for diverse talent. I think so. a lot of it really does come down to the awareness of the value, right? It's, you know, when, whenever you're looking at someone to fill a role, like, if you're hiring someone to solve a problem for you, right? Like, there's, some, there's a need state, I'm trying to find an individual who will help alleviate whatever that problem is. I think part of what we need to do a better job of in general is recognizing that diverse point of views and diversity of experience is a value, right? It does help us get better. It's just, it's a little bit harder to quantify. And frankly, it takes more time, right? I'll be very honest again, in the world of sports, if I post a relatively, call it coordinator, manager type level role, we'll get a thousand applicants. We don't have to recruit for it. People will apply. Um, it's really hard and time consuming to look at a thousand resumes. And frankly, most of them are not terribly differentiated. And the reality is most of those thousand people probably could do the job, right? Especially at the more entry levels. And so it becomes easy for someone to say, hi, my friend so-and-so or my neighbor so-and-so or the kid who played Little League with my kid, you know, really good human, smart, hard working, good degree, well qualified for the role. And I, I've got this person betting that for him or her, um, that's easier, right? And so I think for a lot of folks and a lot of organizations, what it takes is more discipline in terms of actually making sure that we're looking for things, actually placing the priority on having diverse points of view, knowing that that will help us be stronger. But it's also about, to your point on allies, it is about building relationships, the same way that there have been pipelines where you know, people who come from similar backgrounds often end up going to similar places. As there is more diversity in the workforce, I think you'll see more people seeing themselves reflected in that workforce and therefore reaching out or feeling more comfortable or creating more opportunities for other people who look or have backgrounds more similar to him, her, or them. Yeah, and I'm really curious as a follow-up if someone in the audience actually wanted to take that next step mm -hmm. and really go through the motions of getting past that referral, mm -hmm. who would you recommend talking to, even in using the example of your organization, to do the next thing? So when I decided I wanted to work in sports, um, I didn't really know what that meant. I just thought I wanted to work in sports. And honestly, where I thought of immediately was teams and leagues, because that was what sports was in my head. Um, my first year of business school, I had 125 informational interviews. Anyone ranging from a recent graduate who was working as an EA somewhere at the NFL's offices to ultimately the commissioner of the SEC. Um, trying to understand the landscape. I got my foot in the door 
by building those relationships and having those conversations and ultimately using those as an opportunity to really solidify my story, right? What was it about me that would mean someone would take a flyer on someone who didn't have any sports experience, because I didn't, right? How do I build? So it really, I think it is about persistence and building those relationships and, not, and having those conversations and reaching out, reaching out to alumni, reach out to me. I, I will be paying back informational interviews for the rest of my career, and I'm happy to do it. I'll hold you to that. You should do that. The, but again, it's having those conversations, having the persistence, and maintaining them, right? Because you never know. The reality is, if I don't have a job today, you could be the most awesome human in the world. I still don't have a job today. But if it's a, you know, hey, I came across this article, I thought it was really interesting, wanted to share it. So something where you have those opportunities to stay in contact, not in a way where it's like, Hey, is there a job yet? Hey, is there a job yet? But just staying on radars, right? And recognizing that the fastest way to get to where you're going may not be a straight line. So again, I started thinking that I wanted to work for a team. I went to Turner Sports. The reason I got the job at Turner Sports is it was a media rights negotiations and content strategy position. I was really good at data and analytics from my time as a consultant, and I had a wealth of media experience. So I didn't have sports, but I had those. So maybe that wouldn't have been my dream first job in sports, but it got my foot in the door, right? So I think that's, that a lot of it is the building those relationships and being willing to think broadly about, okay, when you're looking at your background, what you want to do, it's great if you want to do something, but the important story to tell is how are you the best person to solve that problem? And that may require a little bit more of a circuitous path than you would have otherwise anticipated. Thank you so much. Of course. Hi, my name is Danielle Pyrak. I am a co-president for the Outdoor and Sports Industry Club, so very excited that you're here. Um, you talk a lot about community, and community is really important here at Foster, but there's a lot of variables that make up community. Um, what are some KPIs and metrics that you use to like evaluate your success, aside from profit? Yeah, yeah. So I'll break community into, I think there are a couple of different ways to think about community, so I want to make sure I'm touching us with both. There's community and culture inside our organization and with our fans, right? So there's the internal culture and community that we're building among our workforce. There's a sense of community that we're working to build amongst all of our fans. And then there's the work that we're doing in the broader community that may or may not actually directly tie to Mariners, whether it's you know, addressing you know, the unsheltered population, whether it's working to um, increase access to the sports of baseball and softball. Um, so there are different KPIs that we'd have on those three buckets. Um, if you're looking at these sort of third bucket of true community impact, the work that we're doing through our community relations group, the work that we're doing through our foundation, a lot of that is, it's, it has nothing to do with profit. It's, on the contrary, it's dollars out the door and dollars out the door to achieve goals in our community to help leave it a better place than it was when we got here. Um, and so on those, it's, you know, we work with King County um, Federation for Play on how many boys and girls are actually playing the sports of baseball and softball. Are we making strategic investments and working alongside a lot of organizations that are doing great work in the space? And then ultimately over time, are we seeing our ability to move the needle? Working in our Soto neighborhood, recognizing that there's a lot of need in that area. Again, coming in alongside organizations that are focused on it, because that's not our core. We, we don't pretend it's our core. But we can work alongside and leverage our brand, leverage our impact, bring along a lot of our corporate partners 
to help organizations that are focused on those areas do what they do even better and more effectively and with greater impact. And so for us, it really is on those, that front, it's looking at the impact. On the community front, if you're looking at it for fans, it's growth, right? It, there's a lot of data that you can get in there, a lot of, um, a lot of surveys that actually all of the different sports leagues put out that help sort of evaluate what percentage of individuals within a given community would describe themselves as fan and what's the level of avidity. You know, that's, a, that's one. Are you seeing that, again, over time? It's a longer-term KPI, but on an annual basis, are you seeing the needle move there? On a shorter-term basis, we can look at attendance. We can look at television and radio audiences. We can look at our social media numbers, all of those, um, to see, again, as sort of a barometer of are we on the right path or not. Great. Thank you. Of course. Uh, my name is Mike Chappell. I just thank you so much for coming today. Lifelong baseball fan. Uh, but, you know, a question about the marketing uh, of the team and for individual players. Uh, coming into last season, Julio was this, you know, generational prospect. Uh, obviously, he was going to be featured in marketing materials. But then the Mariners signed him to, you know, the largest contract in franchise history. Uh, on the business side of things, is there a concrete decision that, he is now the face of the franchise, and we are going to change how we market the Mariners and feature him more. And then outside of this top star player, uh, you know, how do you make decisions about which players to feature in marketing materials? Are you looking at jersey sales, social media posts about those players? How do you make decisions around individual players? Yeah, so Julio, I'll start with Julio and then I'll go broader. Julio was a rookie last year, as you may know, seeing as how he won Rookie of the Year. But he was a true rookie, right? Did we know he was a talented athlete? Yes. He's a 21-year-old kiddo. He turned 22 <laughs> like two weeks ago, right? And so I think all of us had high hopes for Julio last year. We, had, we hoped but had absolutely no knowledge he was going to be as incredibly as he was. And I think what's special about him and somewhat unique about him is the joy with which he plays, the charisma, the energy, just sort of that's all him. Right? Like, this is not us going out there and saying, hey, Julio, engage with the fans. Like, one of my favorite Julio stories is there was a game in um, Cleveland fairly late in the season where there was this insane rain delay, like hours, like four hours plus, and which sucks for the players because they were looking to fly out that night. You're back in the clubhouse. There's not a whole heck of a lot to do. You're just waiting until they allow you to go back out. It's not particularly fun for them. So someone came into the clubhouse at some point and told him that, I mean, almost everyone left the ballpark, like, because there was such a long rain delay. Like, there were almost no fans there. Someone went out and told him there were about 100 Mariners fans just waiting it out in the rain in Cleveland. And they just happened to mention that. He immediately walked outside and then spent the next 30 minutes talking to them and signing balls. Like, that wasn't something we told him to do. That's, that's just who he is, and I think that's what makes him so special. And so in terms of highlighting Julio, it's not a, I mean, yes, we signed him to a very long-term deal. Yes, we expect him to play a major role in our marketing going forward. But this is a team sport, right? So Julio naturally leans into it. It's something where we never try to put our athletes in a position where they're uncomfortable. We're not trying to showcase them as anything other than what they are. And he is someone who's comfortable with it. Um, with that being said, you know, I'll go to the other end of the spectrum, another one of our very young players, Jared Kellenick. People have polarizing opinions on Jared. Um, with that being said, though, Jared's an intense dude. Right? That's who he is. He cares so much. 
it sort of goes back to my impatience and sort of goal setting questions. He cares so much. He, like, no one outworks him. Like, he hustles. But you can see everything, right? And sometimes it manifests in a way that some people are like, they feed off the passion. They're like, yeah, like I get that. Some people are like, ugh. You know? But again, it's about how do we authentically showcase the athletes for who they are. We're not trying to tell them who they are and what to be. And recognizing that the same way we've talked about diversity this whole night, different people, the different people in this room, I'm sure, see themselves in different aspects and different traits of our athletes. Right? They're not one size fits all because, again, they're humans. So when we're looking at how do we feature them, it really is, first and foremost, are they comfortable? Right? Because we don't want to make them uncomfortable. And secondly, how can we showcase them in an authentic way? You know, so little things like the dances after we'd win games last year. We didn't tell them to do that. But again, it was building the trust with the cohort of athletes where they felt comfortable that they could be themselves and we weren't going to make them look silly. We weren't going to be making fun of them. It was going to be something where anytime we're engaging with them from a content marketing standpoint, our goal is to help our fans find ways in which they can better connect with our athletes. Thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. Hi, uh, my name is Ankit. Uh, I'm a lifelong soccer fan. Uh, so it takes years, as you mentioned, to build a loyal fan base, uh, especially soccer, which is so popular around the world, but not so much in the US. So at Atlanta, how did you go about creating this loyal fan base for a sport which is not that popular here? And also, uh, at a high level, what helped you fill out those 40,000 odd seats uh, in terms of initiatives? Just looking from a leadership perspective, what did you do to kind of create this idea that soccer is a popular thing here? Yeah, so I, I, the two of them are interlinked. The two answers are interlinked. So to your point, Soccer is not as big here in the United States as it is in many parts of the world. With that being said, there is a core avid fan base here in the US. Um, and so part of what we work to do is let our fans be our brand advocates. right? Because we knew if you brought a friend to a game, they'd have a good time, and then they'd want to come back. right? So it was how do we help empower our fans to effectively amplify the marketing message that we have and amplify the experience and help showcase them so again the water cooler conversation if you will you know someone who likes soccer instead of being the weirdo it's like well i like soccer i like these other sports you set that person up to be the star right you set that person up to be in a position where he or she is helping bring along others to the sport and that makes them you know that's part of who their identity and their we tied their identity ours in a way that was mutually uh, advantageous because again, when you're looking at filling that many seats, it really was, we recognized there were a lot of people in that venue, particularly up front, who'd never seen a soccer game before. They were there for the novelty factor. What the heck is happening? Or they were there because it was the cheapest ticket to get into Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and it was a really cool <laughs> new stadium, right? So it was how do we make sure that once you're through the door, no matter how you got there, we created an experience that made you want to come back. So that was really the focus there. And, and I mentioned the supply to demand curve. You know, we recognized very early on that a lot of what the experience presented to our fans, particularly those who perhaps didn't know the sport as uh, intimately, it was the experience, I mean, it's, it, it's the ex college football. If you go to a football game, it's the student section, right? It's the energy that's being produced by a section of the, that feeds the rest of the stadium and it creates a really cool experience where even if you don't know or care what's happening on the field of play, it's fun to be there. Right? It's fun to be surrounded by the energy, particularly when it's full. You know, so we recognize that having that scarcity was important. 
which is why we never opened up like a, one section at a time. So, oh, well, we could sell an extra 1,000 tickets. There were lots of games where we could have sold an extra 1,000 or 2,000 or even five or 10,000 tickets. But it turns out if you see 20,000 empty seats, it feels empty. Whereas when you actually saw 40,000 and everything else, because the way the curtaining system worked, 30,000 seats disappeared. Right? It felt full and it created an entirely different vibe. And frankly, the fact that a ticket was hard to come by, it was a nice self-reinforcing prophecy. Like, ah, oh, shoot, I need to get my ticket early. I need to go there. I need to be there. I want to be a part of it. And so it was something where by continuing to really nurture that dynamic, it was key to, I think, help people come, come back that second time. And then eventually, to your point, they learned the sport. They fell in love with the players. We were able, they actually understood what was going on, or they didn't, and they were liking the cheap beer, and they still had fun with their friends. But either way, they came back. Of course. We have time for one more question. Um, you mentioned or it's baseball is a sport that's rife with tradition, and mm -hmm. traditionalists tend to be pretty proud that they're traditionalists. Mm -hmm. In that context, as a female executive, you mentioned um, that there are a few others, literally a few others, in Major League Baseball. I wonder uh, if you have relationships with them or if there's like a secret text chain <laughs> or a way that you kind of stay in touch just to uh, navigate that experience together and how you do that. No, it's a good question. There's, I, I do have relationships with them, um, but I have relationships with many of the men as well. And I think that's, that's one of the things that often gets, at least in my experience, missed is, yes, there are, I, I have more conversations, frankly, with people who have, are in a similar life stage to me. Like I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old at home. Um, and so a lot of people, whether you're a man or a woman, if you're a parent, a parent of young kids, we got something to talk about, right? And so I think for me, part of what's been key is having a deep network where I am very intentional about celebrating and congratulating and supporting folks who can, when they come up. But it's not, in, again, gender plays a role. And I do have relationships with all of those women. And I could not be more excited that they're all getting elevated. Um, but I do think that it's really important to build a network of mentors, peers, and colleagues that are men and women, that are black and white, you know, that are gay and straight. Because ultimately, that's where we're going, right? And right now, there are more white men in the sport. That's not their fault, right? What we're trying to do is how do we actually figure out how to bring more people along for the ride? And so having those relationships where I can pick up the phone and when I'm having challenges, I know I can call Sam Kennedy over at the Red Sox and say, hey man, you've been doing this for a number of years. I'm facing this, I have this question, I'm facing this challenge, what do I do? Right. I can call Stan Carson down at the Dodgers and say, hey, you had All-Star last year, MLB is driving me crazy, what did you do about this? And he's lived through it. So it's having those networks of peers where, again, I very much hope to be that for the women and men who come after me. But I think it's equally important to have that text chain going up because that helps me be better at my job. And I am aware of the fact that I need to do my job well because I was the testing point. You know, so it's like if I can do this and I can do this job well, it makes it a lot easier for the next woman to come along behind me. So having that network of men and women for me has been really helpful. But my cohort is a lot of the new presidents and or parents of young kids. <laughs> well, thank you, Katie. And please join me in thanking Katie for sharing time with our community. Thanks.